Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to kick things off by giving a podcast shout out to Broom Optical, online at icareamarillo.com, and vascular surgeon Dr. Bradley J. Trinidad of Northwest Texas Healthcare System. Learn more and subscribe to Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Stresha McKegg. Stresha is an honorably retired sergeant with the Amarillo Police Department, and we talk about her 26 years serving Amarillo as a police officer, including what it's like to be a woman in a profession dominated by men, especially back when she started. Since retiring, though, Stresha has become an entrepreneur. A few years ago, she launched On Target, a business that offers specialized firearms training for women, whether that's for personal protection or for sport, for hunting, whatever. And after multiple listeners and friends told me I needed to interview Stresha, well, I took their advice. So here's Stresha McKegg. Stresha McKegg, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's my honor to have you. I, I know that we've been talking about recording this for several weeks now, and so I'm glad to finally sit down with you. Uh, and I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests and just ask you how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. I was raised in Amarillo, so I've been here you know, my entire life. I grew up on the north side of Amarillo, okay. and uh, so this is just home to me. This is where I've always been. Do you know why your family ended up in Amarillo? What brought them here? It's funny. I do not uh, exactly. I know my my father's side of the family moved around a lot when he was younger. Uh, my grandfather was a sharecropper, actually. Okay. So I know my father moved to Amarillo after he got out of the military, after he got out of the Navy, because he became a firefighter for the Amarillo Fire Department here okay. in 1942. All right, so, so military, that would have been like World War II then. Yes, he was in All World right. War II. He served in the Navy on the USS Stockton. And quite a colorful career, I'm sure, but I never got to hear about it. He, hmm. One he of those things he it. would not talk about. Totally understand that. No. So anyway, he ended up being a fireman in Amarillo. My mother was originally from Colorado, and she also moved around a lot. How they even met, I'm sure I heard, but I don't remember. It's been too many years ago. Well, you, you grew up on the north side. Where did you go to school? I went to school, elementary school. I went to Pleasant Valley. Okay. And then uh, junior high, I went to Horseman and then on to Palador High School. Okay. And, you know, when you when you got through Palador High School, uh, you had a father who was a firefighter. Um, did you know what you wanted to do? I mean, did you have a career plan at that point? or? I did not have a career plan at that point. But growing up with a father who was a firefighter, we... We, I always looked at him as a hero. Mm -hmm. To me, I was a daddy's girl, and it intrigued me that he was willing to risk his life to save someone that he didn't know. And I thought that was I thought that was great, but I also knew I never wanted to run into a burning building. So right. firefighting for me was completely off of the table. At some point, probably in my mid-teens, I think subconsciously maybe I was looking at police work. I thought that would be that would be fun, maybe because I'm a little bit nosy, but that gives me a, a legitimate reason to kind <laughs> to of ask questions, to ask questions and, and find out what's going on. Um, but I really didn't see any role models at that time either. So I actually, after I went 
after I graduated high school, I went to Emerald College for a while. It's hard for me if I don't have a goal to mm-hmm. stick with something. And I think God eventually put on my heart that police work was where I was supposed to go because I ended up as a drafter for oil and gas companies in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. A pretty and active time in it, that it industry. Was. It, was, it was great and right up to the minute it wasn't. Yeah. And the first first thing that they kind of cut back are things like drafting because that's exploration. That's the exploration end. Mm-hmm. And after getting laid off three different companies three times in a row, I finally I finally got the hint maybe God wanted me to move on to something else. He can't always be subtle with me. Sometimes he has to get a little Get a little more obvious. How old were you at that point? Like, was that in your twenties? I was actually kind of... started the academy when I was twenty eight. So okay. that that was a little bit older. I was one of the older yeah. people in my academy, but for me, it worked out perfectly. So I, I do want to ask this. You know, a lot of if if you want to look at it in terms of gender, a lot of little boys think about becoming cops or firefighters. You know, that's how they play. That's not always something, you know, like you said, that that young girls think about because there aren't a lot of role models. Was that something that, did you feel like you were doing something a little bit different? Um, You know, maybe pursuing a path that was a little unconventional? You know, in all honesty, when I started uh, that adventure, that was actually not anything that crossed my mind. It wasn't until I got into the academy and there were four other women in my, or three other women in my academy uh, for the APD portion of it. Amarillo Police Department has their own academy. Right. At that time, they were letting uh, the Randall County or Potter County, if they wanted to send some deputy in to go through our academy, they would let them do that. So there were four females, counting myself. And I didn't realize until that point how odd that was, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, how Four females out of how many? Because, how many were in that class of the academy? Well, apparently four was unheard of. Okay. Four was a four, lot then. Four was the most I had ever had in an academy. There were probably only seven or eight females at the at the entire department that were law enforcement at that time. Wow. So it, it definitely was the more cutting edge time for women to start becoming law enforcement officers. But fortunately for me, the ones that were at the police department were all good role models. Mm-hmm. So we we had an opportunity to learn a lot from them and they had blazed a path kind of for us to get started. But yeah, it was it was a bit of a shock, as you can imagine, to some of the officers at the police department. Were there some challenges that you faced being, you know, being one of very few women uh, at APD? Uh, did you have to overcome like any misconceptions or, you know, she's a girl, obviously she's not going to be as powerful or able to take down a you know a criminal or something like that. I mean, what, what kinds of things did you have to deal with there? I did have to deal with that. We all had to deal with that. And that's something I think female officers around the country still, still have to deal with. Okay. A lot of it was strength. A lot of it was the strength issue. Some of it was a challenge because there were female officers that had come and gone at the police department that were maybe not what any of us would would want. And so we had to overcome those that all female officers are right. this way or that way. And I mean, there are those male officers too that don't have the right personality to become cops, but they don't always 
define the entire gender, you know, but sometimes that can happen. That is exactly right. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you, when you said that the entire gender is, what's the word I'm looking for that you just used? Stereotyped, maybe? They are. They're stereotyped. The Mm -hmm. entire gender is stereotyped. I, I, I would hope it's better. I was very fortunate. I either didn't recognize it or I ignored it, but I do remember as a new officer, actually, I hadn't even graduated from the academy yet. I was writing an observation for three shifts, and one of the officers that I rode with, who ended up becoming one of my best mentors and still one of my dearest friends, flat told me, he said, I do not understand why a woman would want to be in police work. He said, I can't imagine my wife doing that. I can't imagine my sister doing that, and I, I'm really not not happy with it. And I didn't really have a good response for him, but I did tell him that I would be the first to leave if I did not think I could do the job. No, I do not have. None of us have, or hardly any of us have the same upper body strength as a man does, but we have other strengths that compensate for that. A lot of times we de-escalate a situation just by showing up because we are a female. Okay. And we have to learn how to how to be more diplomatic, maybe, because we can't fight our way out of situations. I mean, we can, but we'd much rather not. Right. So there are there are certain strengths that, you know, it, at the risk of saying, well, all women are this way and all men are this way. I don't think that's true. But there might be some strengths that you bring to it when you're not purely dependent on brute force or upper body strength or something like that. Exactly. All of us male and female, we all have various strengths and weaknesses. And I think if we learn to look and recognize those in each of us, we will make a better officer and a better person all the way around. But yes, we do definitely have our strengths also. Okay. So I know you spent more than two decades with APD. Tell me what your career looked like. What was what was the path? Oh, I was blessed beyond measure. It, it definitely was something that I was meant to do. The first nine years... I was a patrol officer. That's where everyone starts. Now, they don't necessarily all spend nine, ten years in patrol, um, but some of them spend a lot more time. Some Mm -hmm. of them make an entire career out of that. Since I was almost 29 when I started, I kind of had in my mind after a certain point that within 10 years, I would like to promote to sergeant and, and move on. But I loved my years in patrol, and I served all of that in the west side of town, on okay. evening shift, which my my shift was uh, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Okay. And I did that by choice. I, I had several opportunities that I could have transferred to another side of town or transferred to a different shift with better hours. But it was work. Hours were working for me. The work I loved. During that time, I became a field training officer. I became an instructor for the APD in a number of different topics. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of APD officers are instructors in different areas because they do so much of their training in-house. And then other agencies also depend on their instructors, the smaller agencies in, in town that don't are in the area that don't have the manpower okay. and the opportunities. When you talk about being an instructor, is that purely in like the academy setting or is it like ongoing continuing education for officers? It can be both. Okay. And in this In my situation, it was both. I did teach some classes in the academy. I also taught classes in the uh, Amarillo Regional Academy at Amarillo College. 
because there are obviously certain classes that the state mandates that they have. A lot of the classes that I taught, though, were the continuing education classes that are required, the child abuse investigations and and family violence, things like that. So I got a little bit of both of that. I became a defensive tactics instructor, which is an ongoing, and as well as the academy, I became a firearms instructor. Uh, Both of those later... Later in my career, I kind of laughed. I thought, yeah, I got that instruction when I was getting too old and I could break easier, uh, but it, it all worked out. I had an opportunity while I was in patrol and then the detectives, I became a hostage negotiator hmm. for about six years, which was uh, incredibly challenging and I loved I loved it. Didn't particularly like the three AM call outs. Sure, yeah. Just when all of those tend to happen. Nobody takes <laughs> hostages during work. No, hours, no, you know, they very rarely do. They take at a convenient hostages. time. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, well, tell me about that work as a hostage negotiator because I would imagine that being your specialty, it's a specialty that is very necessary when something happens. But obviously, there aren't hostage situations every day or every week, you know, and so. When, when you have something like that, what are you doing in the meantime when, when that's sort of your focus? Well, that that was all on a call-out basis. Okay. You still did, uh, and it's now I think they call them crisis negotiators because rarely did you actually go out on legitimate hostage incidents. There were several, but most of the time it's a, someone is in crisis. Mm-hmm. They've, they've barricaded themselves up. They're in more of a danger to themselves than they are anyone else, but... You might have six call-outs a year. You might have 16 call-outs a year. But in the meantime, you're doing your regular job, whatever your assignment is, whether it's on patrol, whether it's in detectives, administration, whatever the case may be. And then you have periodic training. You'll have a a day's worth of training where all of the negotiators are pulled in and we'll have scenario-based training. uh, With We generally did that with the SWAT team because that's when negotiators are called out. Okay. it's it's in conjunction with a SWAT call up, and I I know that's one thing that people may not understand about police work is that the the training is ongoing. You don't become a police officer, have your academy training, and then you just learn from those skills. You know, use those skills for the rest of your career. There's always education happening, whether it's firearms training or. SWAT training or all those different things. So tell me tell me a little bit about that process of, of keeping those skills sharp or always learning, always understanding better. That is an excellent question, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it because law enforcement officers, it, it's phenomenal how many hours of training they are required. I, I don't even know anymore because I've been, I've been retired for about nine years now, and so the hours are constantly changing that just the state alone mm-hmm. mandates – when I went through my academy, I was my academy required 600 hours of training. Well, that more than doubled in the 26 years that I was there. Wow. And that's just to graduate from the academy and begin your training as a field training officer. You also have to have, uh, it's 16 weeks long, that academy is, or that portion of the training is 16 weeks long. So you add all of that in there, that's even more. And then... You, you do have to have, and again, I've been out of it a little bit, but hundreds of, hundreds of hours of training consistently. Every year you have to have defensive tactics training. Every year you have to have a certain amount of firearms training that is determined by the state. Well, Emerald Police Department, that's a minimum. The state requires right. the minimum. Emerald Police Department does not do anything on the minimum scale. <laughs> 
And Amarillo doesn't recognize that because how would they? They don't Mm -hmm. know. That's behind the scenes stuff. But uh, just to give you an example in firearms training, okay, the state requires a 70% pass rate. Okay. Amarillo Police Department requires an 80% pass rate. And there is a lot of training that goes into that. And it's not just standing out on a firing line shooting at a stationary target. They have a lot of simunitions training, a lot of what, what that is is simunitions ammunition that's not it's not gonna it's not gonna kill you, but you're definitely gonna know if you get hit. Right. It's that like uh, bean bags or rubber bullets, right, it's, those it's, kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, it's kind of a rubbery okay. rubbery bullet type deal. So they do these uh, scenario based situations and they'll they'll train all day, but they they have so much more training than the public will ever realize. Right. And most of that is actually classroom. Hmm. And it, it gets hard for patrol. It, it gets hard for any police officer because they, they have to stop what they're doing. They get pulled out of the field if they're in patrol or specialized unit. If they're in detectives, they've got to let that case load go for the day, and they've got to go to training. And it's a lot of it is redundant. A lot of it's every every few years. But, but it's necessary. Right. So, And along with that, between your educational hours and your hours that you spend being trained through the department or you know offsite wherever wherever the instruction may be and officers can put in for specialized training too mm-hmm. and schools that that they can get approved to go to but you get certifications through you start at a basic patrol level a basic patrolman, and then you can get an intermediate certification and an advanced certification, and then ultimately a master's certification. And by the time you reach that master certification, you could have almost well, you could easily have a bachelor's and sometimes a master's degree. Okay, with an just the amount of numbers, yeah, yeah, numbers. I'd like to hear a little bit about your experience as a patrol officer uh, during those years. You said you worked on the west side. Mm-hmm. You worked, um, you know, the 3 to 11 hour. I, I think people, when they think of police officers, that's what they think of is a patrol officer. Um, but don't always have an idea of what your day-to-day might look like. What kinds of situations are you dealing with? Are there certain ones that are unique to that that time period, you know, the the three to eleven, mm-hmm. or are there certain situations that are unique to the west side of Amarillo versus the east side of Amarillo? Can you kind of give me an idea of what that was like? Uh, the answer to both of those questions first is yes and yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there are there are types of calls that are unique to that time period, just like they are unique to day shift. There, there'll be obviously overlaps and, and things like that, but evening shift, you go in at three three p.m. People are still a lot of people are still at work, right? So uh, you may have you may have calls to a business when there are people there. Uh, more people are out and about when they get off work. Uh, so you you get you get traffic accidents. Okay, you get speeders, but you also you start getting family fight calls. Towards the end of the shift, you may start seeing some DUIs. Okay. So people leaving bars and stuff like that. People leaving bars, and and that all transitions, you know, into into the next shift that comes on. The west side, each side of town, it doesn't matter what it is. They're going to have a lot of the same things, but there are, I think, things that are unique to each side of town. But I can't tell you why they're unique. Maybe one side of town has more 
not I think all the family violence and that kind of stuff I think is it's pretty well spread out through Amarillo. There's no socioeconomic uh, barriers there, but uh, mental cases, mental health cases, hmm. you're not going to have you're any part of town that's not going to have some of that. But some sides of town seem to have more than others. Um, the reason I worked, the reason I enjoyed working the west side of town is it seemed more than any other side of town to have such a variety of stuff. And we used to, we used to be kidded by other uh, officers that worked other sides of town that our calls either required one officer or they required 10. There was no one. <laughs> it was either really, really it bad was, or <laughs> it was fairly minor. Exactly. Okay. What, I mean, what were some of those types of calls that might involve 10 officers? Oh, I mean, what, what were the bad um, ones? And you don't have to go into a specific know, situation, no, but give it, me give me the broad strokes. Okay, there's to me there is nothing uh, about a a minor anything, a, a minor accident, okay, a minor anything. But you could you could get a call on a suspicious person, somebody that's that's walking around the neighborhood uh, that the neighborhood doesn't recognize. He might be he or she might be acting strangely, and so you you find that person, you get that call, you find that person, and what seems like it's going to be a an easy or a smooth encounter, and you're going to be able to determine, you know, what's going on, ends up not being at all. They could be uh, they could be high, okay, and or they or they could be mentally ill, and just someone in a it doesn't matter what how friendly I seem or how compassionate I might sound, I'm in a uniform, so I'm automatically a threat. Right. And now I'm I'm about to have to take someone into custody. So I'm trying to wrestle this person into custody and maybe three or four other people come out from surrounding houses. They don't know the circumstances, but the person in uniform is always the bad guy. So now instead of instead of just trying to arrest one person, I'm trying to keep two or three or four away from interfering with that. So it, it can just it can escalate really up. quickly. We had one I had I had a call at a at a bar, a biker bar one time. Uh, it was a two officer call. It was my primary call and I had a backup. My backup was also a female officer, which I would go through any door with with her or virtually any of the female officers I worked with because I knew I knew she had my back, but mm -hmm. that's just the nature of the beast. That was who available. And the guy ran into a bar. So we went in after him because he had a warrant. Well the second we stepped into that bar, we realized that was probably not a good situation to be in. I managed to grab hold of the person we were chasing by the collar and started backing out as Several other patrons started standing mm -hmm. up. My backup officer grabbed hold of my gun belt, and we just kind of all pulled. We just pulled everybody out of there, and we're calling for backup at the same time. That ended up being about a ten officer wow. backup call. Tell me about your uh, your career after you were a patrol officer. When you became uh, a detective, were there certain certain aspects of that that were more fulfilling to you? That that maybe uh, felt like you were using your gifts in a different way than you had been as a patrol officer. When I when I promoted to sergeant and I went to detectives, it was it was pretty quickly after I went to detectives. I was assigned to work in the crimes against persons cases and specifically at child abuse and sexual assault and family violence okay. cases. I did get a 
great deal of fulfillment when I was able to solve, especially a sexual sexual assault or a child abuse case, because that's you know children, especially children and elderly, they need a voice. Yeah. They need somebody to to stand up for them. They cannot always defend themselves. And so I did get a, a lot of sense of accomplishment when I was able to put someone behind bars that had, or at least help, at least build a good case that was as airtight as I could possibly build it so that we could send it to the prosecutors and then let them let them do their jobs. Psychologically, though, that's a really hard workload. I mean, is that, how do you, how do you protect your mental health in a situation like that? It was, it was difficult at first. Uh, when I was in patrol and working on the West Side, actually, I got a lot of child abuse calls because the CPS department was there, Northwest Texas Hospital, the emergency room is there. So I, to some extent, had been, actually, I'd been conditioned a lot because a lot of times that, those kids were there on those calls or those those victims were there. When you're in detectives, it it's a lot more paperwork. You're not mm-hmm. there at the time, but then you're there... You're digging into everything it more. else. And I don't know, I, I guess because I've always looked at it like this was my calling. We all have a calling. This this is yours. But that was my calling. And I think God just gave me the ability maybe to compartmentalize. And I didn't realize until after I retired, maybe I compartmentalized maybe more than even I should have. Mm-hmm. But I it was it was difficult to a point, but then it became a challenge. You know, what it, not whatever it took. I would never cross a line, but it it was that challenge to find that weakness in that suspect and get that suspect to break down and and admit to what they what they did. And those are some of the hardest cases to get a suspect mm. to talk about because they know how society views right. views that type of crime. And some of them you take home. Some of them you never you never forget. I was. Uh, I guess three years ago. So I've been retired six years and I hadn't been in detectives for probably 20 something, 20, 22 years actually. And I was subpoenaed on a case that I had worked in detectives. And when I first got the call, I'm like, it's been 22 years. (laughs) But as soon as I looked at the report to refresh my memory, it all came back like it was yesterday. Hmm. So there are just some things you you take home with you. We all do. How did you know when it was time to retire? You just know. It's it's not fun anymore. Okay. It it, beca- it becomes a frustration for me. I I had I had done a lot more than I had ever intended to do. I spent after my detectives, I spent nine years supervising our community policing unit, which was also the bicycle patrol. Sure, okay. Man, the best that was the that was the best nine nine years of my career. And if I hadn't gotten old and broken down, I would probably <laughs> still be doing it. After that, my other dream had been to possibly uh, run the academy, the police academy. Okay. One day, I was able to do that for the last five years of my career, and I. I didn't have a job at the police department that I didn't enjoy. But those last two were really special to me. And when I wasn't enjoying it as much, when it became harder and harder to go to work, and physically, it physically this job takes it takes a big toll mm-hmm. over time. 
and I really started breaking down that way. And I think just a combination of the the mental aspect of it, and uh, because running the academy, I mean, those were my charges. Those were my people. Right. I, I took all of that. You know, I take that responsibility on myself. I took that responsibility on myself as I should have, but it. It comes with a cost too, because you you so want everyone to succeed. You you so that they're my kids, yeah, in, yeah, in a sense. And as enthused as I was for them about that, I it it took them it drained me mentally. And then with the physical breakdowns, you know, the knees and the shoulders and all that stuff that comes back to haunt you in your fifties that right, you were doing right. in your twenties and your thirties. It it just I just knew I just knew it was time. While I still enjoyed it. Did you see a change from your own days in the academy to the days when you were running the academy? Did you see more female officers? Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, a lot more diversity in our academies. Was that just uh, something naturally that happened within the culture? Or was that the result of you know, more recruitment or more intentionality to try to diversify the, the police force? I think it was a little bit of both. I, I think that that job, that career is a calling and I think as people saw more role models, mm -hmm. they began to think, oh, maybe that is an opportunity. And then APD went out. We specifically had recruitments uh, for women, and we specifically targeted uh, the Hispanic and Black communities. Okay. And I think it was a con I think it's a combination, but. I don't care how much recruitment you do in any area, that person still has to have that that desire. Sure. It's it's not like recruiting for something that you're gonna go sit at a desk or drive a truck or whatever that may be. That that's all well and good. All businesses probably need to do that, but it's a different type of recruitment. Okay, so I, I know you've been retired now for several years, but you haven't just been sitting around. No, that in a recliner, not watching no, TV, anything no. <laughs> like that. So tell me what your retirement has looked like. Well, about four years after I retired, I was having a conversation with my financial advisor, and he said, you retired young. You need to find something you're passionate about. And I thought, well, I kind of did that for 26 years. Right. I, I never stopped doing I still do all kinds of stuff. But I got to thinking about that, and I thought, I love shooting. I love teaching firearms. I love being out at the range and stuff like that. And we were talking about it and he said, well, what, why would you, what would you want to do if you did that? What would it look like? And I said, I would want to specialize in training women hmm. because it's not a one size fits all, all the time. And you have to learn if you're in a setting, especially like law enforcement, uh, you're going to have to make more modifications maybe than you will on your own if you're doing this to protect yourself. And he said, oh, I think that's a great idea. And the next thing I know, I have my own business within a matter <laughs> of about four weeks, four or five weeks from that conversation. And I started on target and it is Amarillo based. I teach male and female because I teach the same, mm -hmm. teach the same techniques. I teach the same basics, but I specialize in teaching women because it's such an intimidating thing for most women to learn. Okay. And it's it was important, and it's very important to me to take away that intimidation and that fear so they can learn a skill that can very possibly save their life or 
or someone in their family. Tell me why that intimidation is there. What are some of the ways that maybe you approach teaching a woman differently than you might teaching a man? Well, I think just merely being another woman is less intimidating. Okay. I think also I try to make it, it's a serious thing to learn, but you can you can do it in a fun way. So I try to lighten it. I really pay attention to each individual person. I teach all private lessons, so I just get that one-on-one okay. time with this person to kind of learn their personality, uh, to see what they're afraid of. I think most women who've never shot before are afraid of them because they don't know how they work. Okay. And maybe they've grown up with girls don't shoot, you know, just like... Dad and brother would go out hunting right. or something, and, and she wasn't invited. Exactly. Girls don't shoot. Girls shouldn't shoot. Guys can take care of you. Well, you know, we all know that's not the case. And what a lot of women realize, and maybe a lot of men don't, is there, there are so many times in a situation where they're the homemaker. They take care of the home. Maybe they're home all day, but they have small children. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're taking care of a special needs child, or maybe they're taking care of an elderly parent. They don't have the ability to retreat. They're going to have to stand their ground if something happens, if someone tries to break into their home, if someone threatens their life. They don't have an opportunity to escape, to Mm -hmm. retreat, because whoever they're in charge of cannot. So that's a unique responsibility for male or female that's, that's doing that, but most of the time it's going to be a female. And... Females also, we don't learn like men do. You can make it very competitive with the man. Uh, I've heard it said a jillion times, you shoot like a girl. Hmm. Well. What does that mean? To a guy, that means step it up. Okay. You know, step it up. You're not shooting very well. You run like a girl. You know, you flail your arms and you run. Well, most girls don't run like that. But that's what we were told from the time we were children. That's how we ran or how you throw. Um, I tell you what, I know a lot of women that can run circles around a whole lot of guys on a range. But the fear of how a weapon works, what makes it work, They've never, they've never been told, and maybe they've shot. Maybe their husband or their boyfriend or their dad took them out, but they loaded the gun. They didn't tell them how it worked. They didn't tell them what made it work. They just knew it made a loud sound, mm-hmm. and because they didn't have a good grip on it, maybe it hurt. Okay. Maybe the, you know. So I work to take the fear away. The, the one thing that I can get out of the way so that then they can learn because they want to learn. They come to me because this is important to them. They've realized this is their decision. Nobody's making them do it. And if you take the fear away and you show them how something works and you stress the safety, then you can go out and you can have a little bit. You can joke. You have to be safe, but mm-hmm. you know you can still joke about it. And, and you can laugh and you can have a good time. And my number one goal is when they leave, they're not afraid like they were when they came in. Okay. Tell me about the safety aspect, because I, I know that just in our culture, there are a lot of conversations about gun safety. Um, when you are dealing with, let's say, a mother, you know, mm-hmm. who has a, a special needs child or has children at home, wants to protect them, is home all day, but also there's the idea of having a dangerous weapon in the home can introduce something else. And so what what kind of conversations do you have about that? You know, in today's age, there are so many different ways to conceal and and keep a gun out of the reach of 
anyone that doesn't need to have it. And that's going to be specific to that person and that person's home. It obviously needs to be readily available, but there are so many different walk type boxes that mm-hmm. require a handprint or a fingerprint. I mean, you put that fingerprint on there, it it unlocks it, and the gun is right there and it's available. No one else's fingerprint except somebody's that is actually entered into that system is going to work. That that's one of the easiest. They make concealment shelving that goes on walls that. Only the homeowner is going to know how to get into, and those can be kept out of the out of the way of, of children. The, the big deal for someone that's taking care of children is never assume that they cannot get to it just because you put it in a hiding place. Right. Because they're just naturally curious. They don't understand, you know, they've seen it on TV. People get shot all the time on TV, but then they show up the next week in another show, so nobody ever dies. <laughs> So we go over those types of things, and we give them. I give them some options as to some of the availabilities. They, a gun lock comes with every gun that you buy in a gun store. Now, if you purchase a used one, you might not get a new gun lock, but those are a little more time-consuming if you need to get to it in a hurry. But we just discuss maybe different locations to place it where they feel comfortable. I also offer... Uh, one of one of the things that I offer through my business is I will go to your home and I will walk through your home with you. Okay. And we will discuss uh, shooting locations, heaven forbid, if it ever comes to that, uh, how to get out of your home if you have that ability, okay. and how to communicate with your family what to do and to never question you. If you tell them run, if you tell them go hide, wh- whatever you have to tell them to do, but communication is also key. Who are some of your clients? Like. The the list of the, the, the women who come to you? I have had uh, clients as young as 16 okay. who came with, I, ha- I have one lesson, I, I say I, te- I teach private, but, it, you know, this happened to be three generations, a mother, a daughter, a granddaughter. Okay, all together. Granddaughter yeah. was 16, uh, had a great, they had a great time. They all wanted to learn together. A lot of my business that I'm getting right now is they're looking at the world and the world is scarier to them than it has ever been. And they want to be able to protect themselves. So we had a great time with them. I think my oldest client was 86. Wow. Uh, Again, wanted to be able, she was a widow. Her husband had always had a gun, so she'd always depended on him. Now there was a gun in the house. She did not know how to use it. But she felt like she needed to. So it runs the gamut. I have had business people. I have had teachers, a lot of homemakers, a lot of grandmothers. Um, it just, I never know. I, hmm. You know, they come from all walks of life. And I have had several that had never picked up a gun, were, were pretty afraid of a gun. I have several that they can try. They tried some out. They decided what they wanted. And... A year later, they were coming to me because they not only had that gun, they had gotten two or three different handguns. Now they wanted to learn how to shoot a rifle. Yeah, and it's because it's it can be fun. Mm. It, it can also be fun. To close this up, I I just want to ask you: having worked as a small business owner in Amarillo, having spent so many years on the police force, what have you learned about this city uh, and the way that you've interacted with it? Because I know the way that you've interacted with it has been pretty different from a lot of other people. What I have learned is we're very blessed to live in this part of the country. We're very blessed to live in Amarillo. Amarillo has always been supportive. By and large, they have always been supportive of their first responders on all levels. 
it's not perfect, but they are they they are very big in backing us and willing they're willing to help us if, if they see an officer in trouble somebody's going to come to that officer's aid that, mm. that's one thing I've learned um, they're just the people here are just special Hey Amarillo is supported this week by Wick Realty I'm recording this in my house right now and that's where I recorded Stretch's interview that's where I recorded last week's interview with Trevor Cavanis. that's where most of these podcast episodes have taken place and we love our house and we love our neighborhood and we're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying, selling, building, looking for investment property, even if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, I'm back with Stresha McKegg. Stresha, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Uh, Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the 12-foot-long bar from Old Tascosa, which was the site of an 1886 gunfight at the Jenkins Saloon, um, which was between members of two rival Texas Panhandle ranch factions, <laughs> a famous fight. But uh, you can see that at the museum. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, my first question and, and this is one I've been asking most of my guests for the past year and a half or so, but what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? That they're willing to help. If we need a, if, if somebody comes out and said, we need something, we need uh, maybe our, maybe our food bank that is, is seeing a, a shortage in, in the amount of food that they get. There are always people that are step up. Individuals will step up and businesses will step up and, probably more here than I would guess in a lot of places. Okay. Yeah. There are a lot of stories, especially with the food bank. I mean, they, they faced a, a shortage really early and it was corporate donations that kept them afloat in those first weeks of the pandemic. Exactly. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? <laughs> construction. All right. Road construction. Road construction. <laughs> yes. I, I know it's a necessary evil, but I'm, I'm not sure that I won't be permanently scarred by all of the orange and white barrels and cones from now on. It's just, it, it just seems to happen all at one time between what TxDOT has to do and what yeah, the city of Amarillo yeah. has to do. And I, I know that that's uh, a function of not having made a lot of improvements for so many years. And then they all come at once. Just exactly. kind of funnels through there. So exactly. maybe we're on the downhill side, downhill side of it. <laughs> I hope. What does this area not have enough of? You know, I would like to see, I would like to see an improved or new civic center so we might could get some of the stuff that uh, people here drive to even just to Lubbock to see or to Oklahoma mm -hmm. City to see. We have 200,000 people here. Now we need a venue. Hodgetown's great for for what it what it offers and I think that that should show enough people in Amarillo that there is there is a desire mm -hmm. to to step up into the 21st century and uh, let's let's build a venue that we can have more concerts and, and things like that. In. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Just ignore the wind because we've got the best people in the world. Okay. It's it might not be the prettiest place, but on our pretty days, you can't beat it either. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think our biggest selling point is just, just the people who live here. 
Okay. You are, uh, have, have spent so many years as a patrol officer, so I imagine you've been in a lot of different neighborhoods in Amarillo. What's your favorite neighborhood? I have to say one of my favorite neighborhoods has got to be Wolfland. Okay. Uh, it's, it's just, it's got a lot of charm. It has a lot of character. Um, I live in Southwest Amarillo. I, you know, love Puckett. I love Sleepy Hollow and the colonies and the greenways are pretty, but there's a little more character to Wolfland. Not every other house looks the sure. same. It, it seems like today more and more as they, as they build, the biggest change is the brick color and the trim. Right. Right. And so, yeah, with the, I love the big trees. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant? Ooh, that's tough. If I want Mexican food, I like the Plaza and Jorge's. If okay. I want a good burger, you can't beat Golden Light. Okay. I think a lot of people <laughs> would agree with you on that one. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Roasters. All right. You go to a specific one? Uh, the one on Sansi is closest to me, but I usually, it's either the one on Sansi or Georgia most of the time, but I'm, I'm a frequent flyer. Okay. All right. <laughs> and when was the last time you visited Paladuro Canyon? You know, it's been several months. Our weather hasn't been the most conducive, and, and I haven't had a lot of time to do that. But I love to hike. I love anything outside. So I usually try to go to Paladero Canyon, you know, three or four times a month. So Wow, that's, about, that's about pretty time often. To get, about time to get, get back. Yeah, I'm about to have to renew my yearly pass. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to do it. Okay, Stresha, that uh, concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would like listeners to know about or to experience? There's an organization, a nonprofit called the 100 Club, and familiar with I, it. I think you had uh, Suzanne Talley yeah. on the other day talking about it. Obviously, because of my career, that is very near and dear to my heart. And what they do is is not unique to the country; it's unique to Amarillo. But it it's very near and dear to my heart that people would um, would take just a little bit of, of their money and or their time and and donate to that cause because it's something that I can't even I can't even put into words how how much it means to a family mm-hmm. uh, to to know that they most of them don't know that that's gonna that's coming their way sure if, if they suffer if they suffer a loss or a devastating injury so um, it, it really helps really helps more than I think people would realize. So I would have to say, if you can spare $100, um, please consider at least donating to the 100 Club. I want to ask you this question, and I may take it out. Um, Okay. So don't feel compelled to answer it. Um, But I have wondered before, if you are a patrol officer, and let's say you have a traffic call and you you see a 100 Club sticker on that vehicle, does that... (laughs) What what goes through your mind? What kind of thought process do you have? For me personally, I I look at that like I kind of look at the thin blue line. That's really nice. I I really appreciate that that they're supporting us, but I still have a job to do. Yeah, it's I, not a get out of jail free card. It's not a get out of jail free card. I obviously pulled them over for a reason. I was always taught and always try to stick by this. Uh, make up your mind. When you pull some over before you ever get out of your car, make up your mind, are you going to write them a ticket or are you going to give them a warning? Okay. And unless something severely changes that decision, then then you stick with that. They're not going to talk you out of it or no, cry or point to a sticker on their car no, and change your mind then. No, and crying's probably going <laughs> to not help at all. <laughs> 
Okay, well, that's good to know. I know that's a question that a lot of people might have, so I figured I'd, I'd throw you that uh, that softball and let you answer it. Stretch and McKeg, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. I've had fun time. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Stresha for the interview. You can learn more about her training business at ontargetamarello.com. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to my sponsors, Wick Realty and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, and I hope you do, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review that helps other people find the show. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you, so thank you so much for listening, along with the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Heyamarillo's executive producers include Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Katie Linker, Jason Burr, and Barbara and Jim Whitten. This has been episode 234. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.